Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. Though U.S.-China relations appear to have come out of the deep freeze, they are far from warm, and the military and technological competition between the countries is still intense. Today on NatSec Tech, a closer look at the status of the tech rivalry and some ideas on where it might be heading. Our guest is Martin Rasser, Managing Director of Daytena Inc., an open source intelligence company. Martin was previously with the Center for a New American Security, and before that, he worked at the Central Intelligence Agency and the Department of Defense. Great to have you with us. Great to be with you, Jean. Thank you. I'd like to start by talking about semiconductors, about chips, because they are so critical to so many cutting-edge technologies and because it's one area where the U.S. took very specific action vis-a-vis China, imposing export controls on high-end chips and limiting China's access to advanced manufacturing technology. The export controls were put in place more than a year ago. They were updated this fall. But here's the question. Have they worked? That's a fantastic question. My short answer to that is uh, yes, they appear to be working quite well. Uh, no export control is uh, foolproof, of course, right? And there's there's always workarounds that the uh, the party that is subject to those export tro- uh, controls can uh, look to exploit. Uh, so there is some smuggling taking place, some diversions of exports that are indeed legal to entities that should not be receiving them. I think what's uh, most significant is that um, the export controls on the semiconductor manufacturing equipment are extremely impactful. One thing I would point to that I think is maybe underappreciated is also the controls on what U.S. persons are allowed to do in China. There's a lot of know-how that goes into manufacturing semiconductors. And then, of course, there's the the maintenance, the upkeep of, of the machines by denying Chinese entities access to that capability, that knowledge, that has some uh, significant effects on China's ability to become better at fa- uh, fabricating semiconductors themselves, that indigenization process. Do you have any thoughts on whether and how the export control should be improved, should be strengthened? This is a constant um, process of analysis and adjustments that need to be made. Um, no one should think that was what was announced on October 7th, a year and a half ago, is a static policy. Uh, you constantly have to reevaluate, are you achieving what you ultimately sought to do with those controls in the first place? And we're already seeing updates now, and I expect updates in the future. You alluded to this. China has responded to the export controls by upping its R&D and trying to manufacture its own high-end chip. What kind of progress are they making? I would describe it as halting progress. There's a few spots where you can see, okay, they're making some potential improvements into their indigenous capabilities. But the reality of it is the semiconductor manufacturing process is extremely complex. It's difficult. It's very hard to catch up to the state of the art, especially if you're facing headwinds such as export controls. So you don't think we're at risk of their coming up with one in the short term? No, not at all. There was some news um, a few months ago about a supposed breakthrough by uh, a company called Huawei. It's a big telecommunications company. 
that ended up being largely overblown. One of the, the key things is that, yes, you can create chips that may be more capable than uh, U.S. policymakers would like Chinese firms being able to make, but to be able to do so at a scale that's cost-efficient and repeatable, that is extremely difficult. And it looks like the announcement that was made by Huawei was the case of they pushed really hard to create a small breakthrough, but it's not sustainable. It's not repeatable. And that ultimately shows how effective these export controls ultimately are. How important is it to keep the high-end chips out of China's hands? What impact is it having on them? For one, China's ability to modernize its military is definitely affected. And that was one of the main goals of the export controls in the first place. The other is the the human rights element. Uh, another aspect of the export controls that I think people don't talk about as much, but Beijing, the Chinese Communist Party, they're building a massive surveillance state. Semiconductors are extremely important to making that surveillance state a reality. Not being able to use chips uh, to uh, do facial recognition, voice recognition, and analyzing the patterns from all these disparate data sources, uh, that is impacted as well. So on the whole, there's a, a a fairly wide range of, of impacts that this have, especially as you start looking at breakthroughs in artificial intelligence, uh, these large language models that are so much in the news these days, uh, the types of models that underpin uh, chat GPT-4, which uh, I think probably many of your listeners have, have heard about, those types of models require a lot of computing power. Uh, semiconductors in order to be able to to process that. That is all impacted by these export controls. So China is a huge market. U.S. chip makers must have taken some kind of a hit because of these export controls. Can you quantify it? And also answer this question, how do you balance the financial impact to U.S.-based multinational corporations with the security concerns? The reality of it is that U.S. companies and international companies that are impacted by these export controls, their bottom line actually looks very, very good. The In terms of the actual semiconductors, the chips that have been restricted, that is a very small percentage of the total volume of chips that are sold to China. Even for the restrictions on the semiconductor manufacturing equipment, the demand for these machines is so high that there's already a huge backlog in the order book for these companies. They're making money hand over fist in markets around the world, and they cannot meet demand as it is, even with the restrictions on China. And so you, all you have to do is look at the quarterly earnings reports, the annual reports that these firms are producing. Um, they are doing very well financially, and their their longer-term financial future looks very good because of the demand for chips and the machines that make them. So in this instance, the chip manufacturers are doing okay. But there must be other instances where U.S. corporations are hurt because the government has asked them not to sell certain things to certain people. And so let me come back to that question. How do you strike the balance between economic prosperity 
and security concerns? That's a difficult balance. By definition, anytime you impose a control on export, that has a financial impact to the companies affected. Um, NVIDIA, in particular, a major chip manufacturer, is impacted by these restrictions. There's specific kinds of chips called graphics processing units, GPUs for short, that are subject to these controls. So certainly NVIDIA is losing revenue on the sales of specific chips. And by imposing these controls, um, there is an incentive for Chinese firms to find replacements. And now in this case, there's no foreign alternative to these chips. So the answer then is to try and make them yourselves. This has proven to be extremely difficult. But yes, there is the possibility that eventually Chinese firms will catch up and be able to make chips with the capabilities that they can't access now. And that would have a longer term impact on NVIDIA. So then the goal for a company that is affected by these export controls is to continue pushing on the state of the art themselves. So they always stay a step ahead of the competition. China restricted the sale of certain critical minerals um, to the U.S. after these export controls were put in place. Has that had a significant impact? So far, no. Um, germanium and gallium uh, were two specific minerals that uh, sales were restricted. There has also been some restrictions on processing technologies for rare earth minerals across the board. Again, the amount of leverage that Beijing has to respond tit for tat to the export controls imposed by Washington, The Hague, and Tokyo is nowhere near at the same level. Now, does Beijing have other leverage? Yes, absolutely. But then you also risk escalating the, the tensions between the various parties as well. The, the challenge in this whole technology competition, ultimately, that's what, what this is, is that unlike with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, the U.S. and Chinese, but in particular the Chinese and European economies and South Korean economies are heavily intertwined. So anytime you take an action, the, the ripple effects that go throughout these economies can be consequential. And I think both sides are wary of having this spiral out of control. I think the Biden administration has been very clear that they seek to have very targeted impact. They don't wish to see a complete decoupling between the Chinese and U.S. economies. They don't see that being in either party's interests. And I think most of our allies would agree with that stance as well. Meanwhile, the U.S. passed the CHIPS Act with the aim of bolstering U.S. production uh, and reducing U.S. reliance on foreign manufacturers. How would you evaluate the implementation of that so far? The implementation so far has been very good. Uh, if you just look at the people that are working in the CHIPS office at the Department of Commerce, uh, the U.S. government has attracted some of the best and brightest in the field to execute the CHIPS Act. So that's that's great news. It's very good to see. In terms of the overall size of the CHIPS Act, if you look at the 
the number of dollars that are associated with this. That's actually a relatively modest amount. If you look at the the capex of a company like TSMC, which is the world's largest semiconductor maker, you know they plan to spend over three hundred billion. The U.S. Chips Act in in a single year. The U.S. Chips Act uh, for its lifespan currently is about fifty two billion. So in comparison, it's relatively modest. So what that means then is how do you most effectively spend that money? Um, what we're seeing right now is good incentives for companies to set up new fabrication facilities or fabs for short in the United States and Arizona and Ohio in particular are benefiting from that. There was also a recent announcement by the South Korean company SK Hynix that they're opening up uh, what's called an advanced packaging plant in Indiana. That's important because whereas a lot of the attention has been made um, uh, focusing specifically on the fabrication of semiconductors, packaging is extremely important as well. Currently, in order to package a chip, everything that would be made in the United States would have to go to East Asia for packaging. So you're not actually really addressing the geographic vulnerabilities. So the fact that the CHIPS Act is now also addressing packaging here in the United States is an important step. And our European allies, South Korea, Japan, they're all doing the same thing. So over time, we will see significant geographic diversification of the entire semiconductor supply chain. I want to um, change focus here and talk a little bit about open source data. Your firm works with that. Explain what kinds of data you're examining and what kind of conclusions you're able to draw from it. Our data set is what we call techno-economic intelligence. So based on the information that we have collected and continue to collect, we have quite comprehensive understanding of China's technology innovation landscape, the military civil fusion ecosystem, and a good understanding of how Beijing's policy directives translate into activities in China's corporate ecosystem, as well as what universities and research institutes are doing. So what you can then see is how words from Beijing translate into action. And you see a direct correlation between uh, all the stated objectives that the Chinese Communist Party has to become self-sufficient in certain technologies and the research and development activities that is taking place in China's universities and corporations. And who are your clients? We uh, deal exclusively with government clients. So these would be uh, the United States government and U.S. allies and strategic partners. Our goal is to provide these governments with a common operating picture because this is all unclassified, publicly available information. It's readily shareable. And our goal then is to provide these governments with the resources and the capabilities to have a common knowledge foundation that they can then use to craft more effective China-focused policies. So China has tried over the past year or so to limit access to its data. Have they been successful? In terms of shutting off access to certain databases, absolutely. What Daytena has done differently from a lot of people, however, is we we never used those databases to begin with. 
for one reason that we anticipated that access to those databases could be shut off. And that's exactly what happened. But people also have to bear in mind that the information in those databases was data that Beijing was comfortable sharing with the outside world. So that immediately raises questions about how accurate, how complete, and how insightful that information is. So that's why we at Datena, we go to the primary sources for all this information, such that the information is in our platform is in effect the same information that's at the fingertips of policymakers in Beijing. Meantime, I'm sure the Chinese are collecting data about the U.S. and its allies, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there was just a hearing on Capitol Hill uh, very recently that lays out how China approaches that. Um, there's a heavy emphasis on illicit collection. And it's a, it's a huge problem, not just for the United States, for our allies in Europe and in the Indo-Pacific. A lot of this technology competition, the strategic competition, is ultimately a a struggle to understand the other party better than they understand you. And that's one of our goals, just to make sure that U.S. policymakers, policymakers in allied countries have the best available information in order to make the best decisions possible. How would you rate our collection of the data, our U.S. collection of the data, or your firm's collection of the data against the Chinese? Are they much more effective? The, well, speaking from my uh, experience in the U.S. intelligence community, the U.S. is very, very good. The Chinese have gotten a lot better in recent years. They're also willing to do a lot more to get information. I'm talking about espionage, cyber attacks. It's a big problem for private industry here in the United States, and it's difficult to defend against. People like Chris Ray, Jen Easterly, they've raised the alarm bells and people are paying attention. I think people are getting smarter about this now. But I think there's an underappreciation of the power of open source intelligence to add to what we know from our intelligence agencies. And part of it is a mindset shift, right? And I, uh, Mike Morell was on, on your program uh, not too long ago, and he, he made the point that we have to shift from the mindset of, well, if it's not collected by us, we don't want to touch it, right? We have to go from not collected by us to proudly found in open source. That That's one of my goals at Daytona. Data, of course, feeds AI systems, another major area of competition with China. The U.S. is judged by many to have the lead in AI right now, but is China nipping at our heels? China has very good capabilities in certain areas of artificial intelligence. I'm thinking in particular of facial recognition, gait recognition. A lot of the capabilities that go into building the surveillance state China is very capable at. Where Chinese entities are not as good is in applying AI-enabled systems in a business context, for example, just because the incentives aren't there. The Chinese government is spending money on uses of artificial intelligence that frankly aren't all that palatable in, in open democratic societies. So that's a distinct difference there. Then there's also the overriding focus on 
security and control that the Chinese Communist Party has. So for large language models like chat GPT-4 type capabilities, for example, there's a lot of fear in the corridors of power in Beijing, where there are severe restrictions being placed on companies doing that type of research in China. That's a big strategic advantage for the United States in that regard. If they do um, surpass us in AI, what are the implications? Many leaders around the world have commented on the power of AI to transform society. It's a huge enabling technology. The the term surpassing, it's you know, it's it's difficult to describe exactly what that would look like. You know, I don't think there would be one country that dominates all aspects of AI. You'll have pockets of excellence in different parts. But on the whole, Artificial intelligence will do a lot to transform societies. It will propel economic growth. It will make things we do today much more efficient, more cost-effective, and it will open up capabilities that we're only just now starting to fathom or even possible. Obviously, the more capable you are across the spectrum of artificial intelligence, which is a very vast sphere, the better off you'll be. Um, The key for the United States is that we keep investing, keep researching, and keep developing. And the the recommendations that the National Security Commission on AI put forward, for example, provides that blueprint. That's what we should be following. And I think we're doing a pretty good job at that so far. There's talk right now about open source AI models. First, give us a thumbnail of what an open source AI model is and how important do you think they are? There's a lot of debate on that front right now where there definitely is value in having publicly available knowledge on certain types of AI research because you can share ideas efficiently. You can build on the ideas of others So there's a lot to it. It fits very nicely in how Western open democratic societies do science, do engineering. So there's a lot of positive there. The risk then, of course, is people that you don't want having access to that information can see it as well. Balancing open scientific exchanges with protecting what needs to be protecting is very difficult. And we're seeing that not just in AI, but in semiconductors, computer programming, just scientific research across the board, biotechnology, quantum information science. I think that's one ultimately one of the biggest challenges for our policymakers is to figure out where to strike that balance. And that balancing point will be different for different scientific and technical disciplines because the risk factors are different for each one. That alone makes science and technology policy so critically important for U.S. economic security and U.S. national security. And that's also one of the reasons why people are rightfully concerned that our policymakers don't always have a very good understanding of everything that's involved. And that's why SESP is such an important organization, because they help raise awareness of what the issues are, and are raising the level of of literacy in, in these various topics. 
You have argued that the U.S. should embrace a whole-of-society technology policy. Explain what that is. Everything that the United States does should be tied to a broader goal. Um, Because of what's at stake, it's essential that we take a whole-of-society effort to do it. And that means investing in education. That means investing in research and development, particularly basic R&D. That's a function that government should primarily fill because corporations won't naturally do that themselves because the uh, return on investment typically isn't very good. It's risky. Government needs to step in and do that. Governments often need to set strategic goals. Where do we want to be as a society 20, 30 years down the road? Governments, government leaders are well-placed to set those objectives. And you have to harness industry and academia to help make that happen. Again, I'm not suggesting that we have a top-down directive like you see in authoritarian countries such as China and Russia. We should rely on uh, the openness of American society to, to make that happen. But the days where policymakers in Washington can just take their hands off the wheels and say, oh, companies, industry will take care of this, that's not quite right either because there are certain things that are in the national interest that companies won't do because it doesn't quite align with their bottom line. That's why you're seeing a a renewed focus on industrial policies such as the CHIPS Act to incentivize companies to do things such as building a fab in Arizona that they would not have done on their own because it is more expensive. We're at a point now where the most efficient, the most cost-effective way of doing things may not actually be the most desirable way of doing things for matters of national and economic security. What would you say to an average American who hears all this talk about tech competition with China and asks, why should I care? What does it mean for me? Ultimately, what we're talking about is... America's ability to maintain an open, free society, be a wealthy and industrious society. Technology is inextricably linked in American competitiveness. So that means that we have to strive to be the best or at the very least extremely competitive on all these fields because these technology areas are now so fundamental to how our society functions, how our economy functions. So biotechnology can completely transform how we grow food, how we develop medicine, and how we approach manufacturing and construction. That's just one technology area. Quantum information science can open up whole new possibilities in how we process information. Just to name one example, semiconductors, they're everywhere. Our economy, our society cannot run without semiconductors. So we have to make very sure that we can make them, we can design ever better ones, and that we have the supply that we need to keep going. So it's so cross-cutting and so fundamental all at once that we cannot afford to fall behind. Because if you do, 
then you're beholden to others. And then you don't control your own destiny anymore. And I think as Americans, that's the last thing we would want to see. So that's why ultimately I'm very optimistic that we will get these policies right. It'll be in fits, fits and starts. I think it was Winston Churchill that said you can count on America to do the right thing after all other options are exhausted. That's kind of the point where we're at, but we're moving in the right direction. And and that that ultimately is encouraging to me. Martin Rasser, Managing Director of Daytana Inc. Thank you so much for your insights today. It's great having you with us. Thank you so much, Gene. It was a real pleasure. A reminder that the inaugural AI Expo for National Competitiveness is coming up on May 7th and 8th at D.C.'s Walter E. Washington Convention Center in conjunction with the Ash Carter Exchange on Innovation and National Security. Go to scsp.ai slash expo for more information about sponsoring, exhibiting, or attending. This has been NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks for joining us and take care.